Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. The COVID-19 pandemic is rolling around the world, extinguishing expected futures and opening up the possibilities of different ones. At FuturePod, we have decided to speak to our previous guests and ask them what this moment in time means for them and more importantly, to all of us. If you would like to know more about the guests we speak to, then please check out their earlier interview on the website, futurepod.org. Today, our guest is Riel Miller. Welcome to FuturePod again, Riel. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be back. <laughs> Glad to have you back, mate. So, Riel, what sense are you making of what is happening and what do you think is ending and what is beginning? Uh, very good question, Peter. As a futurist, I feel that what I can contribute now is really not another scenario of the long term or the short term, nor is it to exhort people to believe that with more foresight, you know, like to, to doing more foresight exercises or more forecasting and with greater resolve, they could somehow create some specific futures yeah. or prepare better for some specific futures. Now, that's a, bit, that's a bit tough to say because it seems like this is exactly the moment when we should be saying, mm. oh, but why didn't we listen more carefully to all the scenarios? Why didn't we pay more attention to this scenario and that scenario? And of course, that is certainly something that we can recriminate about. Mm. And it's certainly something that we could say, look, you should have waited the scenario about the dikes failing in New Orleans or the, uh, the seawall at Fukushima or uh, the fire barriers for the forests or uh, the preparatory work for the COVID virus, which was a pandemic that everybody knew was coming, but we didn't want to prepare for. We could, we could recriminate and we could say, that needs to be ameliorated. And guess what? Foresight and futures thinking are going to really make it better. We're going to be able to do this a lot better. But I really, I really don't think that's the lesson from the point of view of how I understand what it means to be aware of the role the future plays in what we think and what we do. In other words, and I want to try and be you know, precise about this, what matters now, because a shock is a powerful opportunity and it involves terrible loss, is to make the case for a pivotal change, a really big change in how humans make choices. So I think this is, a, this is really a profound opportunity. It's indeed a responsibility opened up by this particular crisis is to take advantage of the circumstances in order to learn that there's another way to exercise our capacity for agency. And this is the, uh, the kind of, of transformation that can be made by a choice. Now, the point of view, and you and I have discussed this before, the, that I have been struggling with and elaborating for 35 years now uh, as a futurist, is a tricky one because it seems to have an element of what we might call fatalism or I cannot make a difference, yeah. right? Because the future is unknowable and therefore I'm paralyzed. But I don't think that that's the message, as you know. Uh, but I do think that there is something that's related to understanding why we find ourselves in these positions with respect to preparation and with respect to directed futures. 
the futures that we believe are, are important. And to me, this is the issue around futures literacy. That is the capacity uh, to understand the reasons and methods for using the future. You know, there are many, many different ways to explain what that means and why it changes our relationship. And again, I, I struggle with different different formulations. I mean, when I try and, and say, look, what's happened with the, the, the pandemic and a shock like that, I try and find a positive example. When people, when a person falls in love, they meet somebody and they fall in love, all of a sudden, the future that they imagine is different. And this gives them a whole set of things that they want to do in the present and things they pay attention to, let's say their appearance or to go out and buy flowers or whatever it happens to be. It changes their behavior immediately because their future has shifted. Now, yeah. this a power of ours to imagine, this human capacity to imagine, this is the way the future enters into the present because it has no other way to enter into the present. And yet we don't really explore why we're imagining and how we're imagining. Now, a lot of the foresight work that we've done has been about why the how of the imagining part. You know, should we use Delphi? Should we use expert opinions? Should we use uh, scenario methods and one scenario method versus another? And how does narrative get constructed? And, and all of those things that, that help us to understand the images of the future that are so abundant in the world around us. But the reason for using the future has remained basically unquestioned and unexamined. And for me, this is a fundamental, profound barrier between humans and the world around us. And if the pandemic is an indicator of the extent to which we are out of sync, we are disconnected from the natural world in which we live, the cosmos with its creativity that we have, in the same way that climate change is, then to me, this is the obstacle to making that transition. And just to, to finish on this point, pandemics in the past have significantly altered uh, the way human societies function, our relationships with each other, our relationships with the world around us. Uh, arguably, uh, the Black Death, the Black Plague, opened up the opportunity to enhance productivity. And that that preoccupation with tools was very crucial in shifting all the factors that led to the Industrial Revolution and have shaped our societies. Mm. In that transition, one of the things that became evident was that everybody needed to read and write. Now, there's a choice, arguably from my point of view, the most important choice that humanity's ever made as a species was to enable everybody to have a competency. And that competency was to access reading and writing. This meant that you didn't have to say, well, I need so many shoemakers or so many uh, blacksmiths or so many electricians or so many scientists. It meant instead that you could say people who want to learn or do something can read and they can learn on their own. They can share what they've learned with each other. And this is a fundamental shift in the capacity of the species to do something. Now, futures literacy, which is the ability to understand that we can use the future for the future, meaning to prepare 
or to set targets, and for emergence, meaning we don't set targets, we don't prepare, but we use our imagination to give us the, this, I think, uncanny ability to invent, to detect novelty, to improvise, to be spontaneous, to live in the moment. That other part of how we, that other reason for using the future is such a fundamental characteristic of the relationship that we have to a creative universe. Because if we stay in our anticipation for the future mode and we remain frightened, essentially, by the fundamental characteristics of the future, which is its unknowability, then not only do we paralyze ourselves with fear most of the time, but we induce ourselves into this monumentalist, defensive, heavy, heavy on our planet and heavy on ourselves way of creating security yeah. and a sense of, of well-being. And to alter that sense, to, to be able to feel at ease and comfortable in our amazingly creative universe, we have to fundamentally enable, that is, create the capability that will allow people to appreciate unknowability and uncertainty, and therefore also live their lives in a way that takes that into account, and therefore does not put us into the kind of position that we find ourselves in now, where we're amazingly brittle, because we have a monoculture of industrial production. And that monoculture, which is spread all over the world, is of course unbelievably vulnerable to shocks. That's, that's what we know from diversification. So we've set ourselves up, but at a very profound level, to face this kind of problem. And I'm very, in some ways, this might sound grateful for this signal, this powerful and terrible and dreadful signal that opens up an opportunity to really hammer home this point, that humanity has done one major thing to increase its capabilities as a species, which is reading and writing. We invented reading and writing, and then we diffused it to everybody. And now we have a chance to work on something that's perhaps even more central than the creation of knowledge and the diffusion of knowledge, which is what reading and writing is about, which is our imagination. Our imagination is this absolutely fabulous, incredible capability. But we have really very little understanding of how it works, why it works, and to what purposes we can make it serve. It, it might sound kind of like a bit crazy, but to me, this is an incredibly exciting moment. I mean, what, what I'm hearing, Riel, is, if I use my words, is that you're excited and also in awe of the transformational nature that the future can play for. It, it has a power to change everything about how the person sees themselves and their place in the world. Exactly. In other words, it's so central to perception. This is why, in other words, what we see, what we can make sense of, what we pay attention to is oriented, structured, selected by the imaginary futures we have in our heads. These hopes and these fears. What we fear, let's say it's as simple as getting hit by a car. We walk across the street, we pay attention to what our imagination tells us that says that car that's far away, we imagine it won't all of a sudden you know, speed up to uh, 100 kilometers an hour and knock me over. It'll continue on its current trajectory, which is a forecast, and that trajectory will not endanger me. In other words, the imagination is central to our survival because it structures, it gives us 
the ability to sense and make sense of our environment. If we don't use it to its fullest, then I think pretty clear to me, we deprive ourselves of our ability to be part of the universe and be creative the way we, I think we are able to be in a rather exceptional fashion. I don't, I don't believe in exceptionalism for humans at all, but I think that, that our imagination is, is this really bizarre, wild thing that, that often overwhelms us and that we don't know how to wield, but I think we can become much better at it. Why is it that we seem to be afraid or we have such poorly developed imaginations? You know, Peter, I think, I think it has a lot to do with power <laughs> and the way in which we've created systems that preserve power. And by this, I mean that the reproduction of yesterday's imagination, meaning yesterday's way of structuring relationships of status, hierarchy, exploitation, the need to reproduce those have created a sense, a kind of an approach to security, which is based on this idea of reproducing the past. Oh, I know it works. It's practical. That will make me feel secure. And I think that, that if we compare that with civilizations or communities and cultures that have had a healthier, what I would consider a healthier relationship to power relationships, but also birth and death, we don't necessarily have to be in that mode but that for a very long time now, our civilizations in many parts of the world, uh, and I here include East and West, have been oriented towards the reproduction of the past by essentially locking it down or, or you know, inhibiting, if I, if I can put it that way, the ability to imagine alternatives. That, this is what I call poverty of the imagination. Yeah. And I think we've been kind of living in that state of poverty of the imagination, largely to help create a sense of security that benefits those in power. Hmm. And again, if I take your line, then really what happens when a, a really disconfirming event like COVID arrives, then just, just trying to get back to the past again after the event just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, you see, yeah, yeah. But you see, this is, this is, the, this is the incredible thing here is that what exactly does a shock like this, whether it's, you know, Fukushima or a pandemic, what does it, what does it say? It says, oh dear, our leaders are fallible. Damn, we should change leaders. Damn, we should change our model. Damn, we need more technocrats. Silly people, we, we have the wrong weighting uh, of, our, of our discounts on masks. We should have invested more in masks because we didn't know there'd be a huge payoff coming uh, down the road. But this is completely the wrong lesson to learn. Because they'll never be prescient. They will never, we will, I mean, who, who believes we can suppress the, 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 the fact that our universe will continue to surprise us? Mm. I mean, a crisis-free future, a shock-free future is just a non-starter. Yeah. And so if you say, well, I'm not going to be shocked by that, a pandemic, which we shouldn't be shocked by, but we are, the question becomes, how do you orient yourselves into a position where that kind of shock is not actually an expression of a brittleness and an alienation from nature. In other words, I'm trying to get to the root of this, this issue rather than simply saying, you know, let's change the leadership. If we continue to ask our leaders to be uh, certain, <laughs> or if we continue to ask our plans to be, uh, you know, the solution to our problem, then we're just locked in to this, I think, completely one-sided way 
of thinking about what the future is good for and of thinking about our relationship to uncertainty, which puts us in a position which is untenable, that uncertainty is our enemy because we want to play God, we want to plan the future, and we are critical of the engineers who failed us. Yeah. So for the listeners going forward, what are you, as you start to pay attention and look for emerging signs, what kind of things are you looking for or paying attention for? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a good question, and I have to say that that uh, obviously, kinds of changes. Uh, the the example that I use, uh, the historical example of reading and writing, uh, the shift to universal literacy. Um, you know that that kind of change took us more than a century, and then probably took centuries in terms of setting up the conditions. Because as we know, in these kind of complex systems, a tipping point can happen at any moment. But setting up the conditions for that tipping point can take all sorts of different time for durations. I get the impression, Peter, and and maybe you know this is uh, maybe maybe it's just wishful thinking, which is a you know an emotional attitude on my part. <laughs> Popping up all around the world is a is a discontent with the way the future is being used. Now, I think that there's a real danger that something like a pandemic shock, which throws us back to wringing our hands and worrying about why we weren't technocratically smarter and better and and beating ourselves up for saying, you know, uh, we just need to put ourselves in a position so we can absolutely dominate nature. Yeah. Because damn it, nature is bothering us with these silly viruses that invade our, our, our bodies. I mean, in that sense, and I've been talking to my friend Bio Akomalefe, it, it says it's like, this is like an alien has arrived on earth. Yeah. But instead, this alien came in, you know, in the H.G. Wells style for the Martians through a virus. But to think that we can lock that down is to absolutely take the wrong lesson out of it. So I think though that that opens up an opportunity for us to not be quite so pretentious. And I also think that a lot of the philosophical and scientific work around complexity, a capability-based approach to understanding human freedom, open up new vistas, new uh, ways for us to enhance the apparent importance of anticipation for the future and anticipation for emergence and therefore the cultivation of futures literacy as a universal human capability. So I'm very hopeful from that perspective that we can use this shock to, to reinforce uh, what seems to me to be a general movement taking place uh, all around the world to improve our ability to use the future. Fantastic. Yeah, look, it's, uh, I'm very excited I mean, listening to you, it does, again, you you remind me again, it's good to be reminded about how creative people are in the face of crises and how people are emboldened and surprise themselves. And so and so, what I'm hearing from you is this is an opportunity for people to, to really surprise themselves now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my first reaction, by the way, to the, the shutting down of offices and others is, hallelujah. <laughs> at last uh, i mean i've been writing about this actually since the 90s and saying look we have an opportunity here uh, if we can see it i mean this is another good illustration of the poverty of the imagination it's been around us all along this ability to work and organize work differently and similarly you know all these technologies that we've got for video conferencing and for 
uh, telepresence and all the rest. These have been sitting around as well. But what work have we done? The inventive, the creative, the experimentation, necessity being the mother of invention. What work have we done to, to actually create the intimacy, the sharing, the, the caring and the, and the connections that make collective intelligence and emotional intelligence function, not in face-to-face contact? I mean, it's really doable. Virtual spaces, avatars, games that we play. These are habits. These are norms. These are standards of politeness and of reputation and of status. All of those things are variable. None of those things are fixed. We can absolutely invent entirely new ways of connecting and relating to each other and get beyond this this stupid habit, which is when a computer is invented, we replace the typewriter (laughs) and then we do exactly what we did with the typewriter with the computer, uh, which of course is counterproductive. So now is really for me also a a moment of uh, creativity and invention around a whole series of very practical, uh, but very tangible and powerful needs and challenges for humanity. Awesome. Riel, thank you on behalf of the community for taking some time out. I know how busy you are. I really do appreciate it. Me too, Peter. Real, real pleasure to, to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.